0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 6th of January 2024. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with the journalist and Monocle radio regular, Vincent MacAvini.
1: Then... Taiwan is also having a presidential election in a couple of weeks, which will be very interesting to watch. Everybody else with any interest in you know global geopolitics is going to be watching pretty carefully. Monocle's Naomi
0: Sue Elegant looks ahead to the upcoming elections in 2024 in Asia. And...
2: The other feeling I had was that this was rock bottom, that we couldn't really descend any further from here. Fast forward three years and, well, I'm not sure we've reached bottom in the United States just yet. Three years on, Monocle's Chris Chermak
0: reflects on the Capitol Hill riots. First, though, here's the news. In Bangladesh, at least four people, including a child, died in a suspected arson attack on a passenger train, police said today, on the eve of the general election. Arsonists have also set fire to at least five primary schools, including four polling booths. The main opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party, the BNP, is boycotting the poll for the second time in three elections, saying it's a ploy by Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina's party to legitimise a sham vote that will deliver her party a fourth straight time. In the US, the Supreme Court has agreed to take up Donald Trump's appeal against a decision by Colorado to remove him from the 2024 ballot in that state. Lawsuits in a number of states are seeking to disqualify Trump, arguing that he engaged in insurrection during the US Capitol riot three years ago. The case will be heard in February and the ruling will apply nationwide. And Senegal's Supreme Court has ruled against opposition politician Ousmane Sonko in his appeal of a libel conviction, dealing another blow to his hopes of competing in next month's presidential election, lawyers said. Sonko has been battling various court cases since 2021. These have hampered his plans to vie for the presidency in the February the 25th vote and fueled unrest that's damaged Senegal's reputation as one of West Africa's most stable democracies. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio by my colleague Vincent McAvinney. Good Lyle. morning. Good morning, Vince. I haven't actually seen you since uh, our Christmas, rather drunken Christmas party. Yes, yes.
3: We can't <laughs> talk about that on air though, of course, of course.
0: <laughs> no, a murder, a murder there. <laughs> um, but you had, a, you had a great first of season.
3: Yeah, lovely festive season, nice and relaxing uh, at home and then New Year's in London. Excellent.
0: Uh, listen, we, in our news headlines, everything is about elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we'll be talking Dubbed about. The
3: biggest today. year for democracy ever, over 2 billion people across the world from India to European Parliamentary to UK to US elections. And it it's going to be a huge one.
0: Yeah, well, the whole programme won't be just about uh, elections. We'll also be swapping out that first consonant and talking about that too. So that's coming up in a little while. But mm-hmm. right now, let's look at something that happened on this day, three years. So today marks the third anniversary of the U.S. Capitol riot on January the 6th, 2021. Three years on, and with another presidential election looming, Monocle's Chris Chermak looks at how views and memories of that day have changed and whether American society and voters remain divided today.
2: I remember seeing the pictures from here in London of people breaking windows and doors back at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. It's hard to describe the sort of shock I felt as an American myself, rather than as a journalist. It felt like a personal attack, just because of what the Capitol building in the U.S. represents. It wasn't unlike the feeling that I remember getting after the September 11th attacks on New York in 2001. The other feeling I had was that this was rock bottom, that we couldn't really descend any further from here. Fast forward three years, and, well, I'm not sure we've reached bottom in the United States just yet. Facing the prospect of another Trump-Biden election, American voters and society remain as divided as ever. Having been back in the U.S. for the past year and a half, what's striking to me is how differently January 6th is remembered in society, depending on who you are, where you live, who you watch, read, or listen to. Both sides see January 6th as a dark day for democracy, and a majority of Americans are concerned about the state of American democracy today. But the reasoning is what differs wildly, depending on where you stand. For many Trumpian conservatives, January 6th remains the day that democracy was usurped and that Trump's supporters were lulled into a trap. Conservative media stars like Tucker Carlson Today openly suggests the whole thing was essentially staged by the FBI, that police were luring people into the Capitol, and even that it was really a left-wing plot by groups like Antifa who were behind the whole thing. Trump supporters currently in jail are hailed as heroes in this narrative, wrongfully imprisoned. And even if you don't believe those conspiracies as a conservative voter today, you're likely to believe that something was off about 2020, that the media and establishment are against you and what you believe. What's striking too is how impenetrable this narrative is, propagated by a self-reinforcing loop of misinformation and disinformation that has enveloped so much of the conservative bubble in America today. As a journalist, I've tried to break through to engage in discussions with voters. I've had Trump supporters tell me that I need to open my eyes, see what's really happening. Now, to be fair, the liberal bubble in the US can be equally impenetrable. And what's more worrying is that, aside from curious journalists like myself, Most people just aren't talking to each other about it anymore. We're all too exhausted to start an argument. We'd rather see January 6th as a piece of history instead of something living that we still have not worked our way through in American society. If there is a silver lining, it's that supporters I've spoken to at Trump rallies tell me they're unlikely to stage anything similar again, because whether they believe it was staged or not, they've seen what happens, that they can end up convicted of a crime. My own hope for 2024 is that we can find a way to debate the election and cross the aisle without being disagreeable, because the one thing we can all agree on is that our democracy is at stake. For Monocle, I'm Chris Jermak.
0: Well, Vinny, I mean, we've been hearing in our headlines that the Supreme Court has said that it will hear an historic case to determine if Donald Trump can run for president. So they've agreed to take up Trump's appeal against a decision by Colorado to remove him from the ballot. Uh, and mm. that's going to be heard in February. The ruling will apply nationwide. So come what may, by February, we should know whether Trump can stand for president or not.
3: Yeah, which is an interesting decision because it seemed mm. like the court, the Supreme Court was trying to stop becoming the centre of all this, to stop being political and to stop being the decider because it had turned away uh, the actual case that's being brought by prosecutors about january the 6th saying it needed to work up through the uh, lower courts so it is quite something that it's now going to step in and we all remember bush v gore back in 1999 the implications that had at a real turning point for the court all you know it was all about the hanging chads and the count in florida uh, and it did long-term damage to the reputation of the court it's became much more of a a tactical tool for both parties to want to use. Uh, And the current makeup of the court, of course, is is now weighted Conservative. They've overturned Roe v. Wade, including justices that Donald Trump put on himself. So I think Americans will be watching with a lot of nervousness because it's not just the election seemingly at at stake here and Donald Trump getting on it. And and if, if, for instance, they decided that he... um, wasn't allowed to be on it because he had breached this clause about being an insurrectionist, then the wrath of the sort of MAGA wing, the alt right the kind of militarised Proud Boys, I mean, that would turn fully on the court. And we've seen threats and acts of violence against judges in the United States growing in numbers. It could hurt them. But equally, there would be a lot of anger from liberals that does seem in some ways that if you accept that Donald Trump did instigate that riot and that insurrection attempt, that he has breached their constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, it is going to be quite an interesting one to watch and you know yesterday it was uh, 11 months exactly until uh, election day. Um, it doesn't look like Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis are making any kind of real breakthrough to be an alternative. They only will be on the ticket uh, if something catastrophic like this was to happen to Donald Trump. But it would create huge jeopardy for the future of the Supreme Court as an institution.
0: And it all hinges on the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which bans anyone who's engaged in insurrection or rebellion from mm. holding federal office. But Interestingly,
3: Trump- enacted after the Civil War, Yes, Um, But also, and and one of my defining memories of January the 6th watching the coverage uh, was watching someone, you know, storming through the Capitol buildings uh, with the Confederate flag, something that had never happened uh, in the course of American history. That is not the flag of the country that that is the representative house of. Mm.
0: And of course, what what Trump's lawyers are saying is that even if this law stands, it doesn't apply to the president, which then means you could strike down any number of laws and say, well, they don't apply to the president. You're just setting the stage for whoever comes next to be a complete dictator if they can say, I'm above the law.
3: I mean, I think that's part, slightly part of the problem. Obviously, it's the head of state position, but in most other countries around the world that have presidencies, I think for France, you would always sort of say, you know, former president Emmanuel Macron, now he's sort of saying to short Nicolas Sarkozy, who was the president. But I think there's a slight issue in the way that they always refer to past presidents as like the president. And it's like, well, he's not the President—that's the person currently in office. They were <laughs> a president, and part of it is that it sort of bestows some sort of magical cloak that allows them to sort of swerve any kind of, of you know. But any kind of sort of criminal prosecution. But that, that simply cannot be the case in a system like America that was designed to reject the idea of a, a monarchy where one person sort of sits above the law and isn't beholden to it. Uh, that The idea that he should have this kind of protection for life uh, and particularly, you know, the, the things that he did Uh, in office and exiting office uh, very much were not in the normal role of a president. They were, you know, attempts on the future of the state. Mm.
0: And of course all sorts of other things coming up, including the fact that he was uh, a frequent visitor and friend of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's. Mm. Lots of names just been released. Which has
3: been a a real hobby horse for attacking all manner of people uh, by the sort of alt-right MAGA movement. But they're very quiet on the fact that not only is he appearing in those documentations, they have a well-recorded recorded history, including a video of the two of them partying with a lot of very young women at Mar-a-Lago after his, Trump, uh, after his divorce back in the 90s.
0: Which is extraordinary, given the amount of legal interest swirling around uh, this case and how many people are likely to be brought down by it, including Britain's Prince Andrew.
3: Mm, very much so. Yeah. yeah, someone who, again, I think the royal family were at pains to say is uh, no longer a working royal this week. And, uh, you know, I, th- I, th- I think... Ever since that I Emily mean, made this extraordinary interview, which destroyed his public image and, and his legacy, if he had one, um, you know, the fact that he still has sort of flirted thinking he's going to come back, that he's some kind of asset, even at Christmas, I thought it was extraordinary that he wheels out his ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, who hadn't been there for 30 years, and they were sort of walking the Christmas mm. uh, march to church together. And he was sort of, you know... It seemed to be engaging with the public as if he was still a full working member
0: well of course the rich are different as it's been famously said mm. uh, and there's a film that's been capturing everybody's attention now yes. just on this theme which is of course Saltburn now it's written and directed by Emerald uh, Fennell first uh, who funnily
3: enough played the original Camilla in The Crown exactly <laughs> yeah.
0: great friend of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's yes. daughter of the uh, jeweller Theo Fennell so very mm-hmm. much brought up in that moneyed quite sort of yes. upper middle yeah. class world yes um, uh, lots and lots of conflicting views on Saltburn. On Saltburn,
3: yeah, really interesting. This is uh, her sort of uh, sophomore effort. Her first uh, film that she wrote and direct that got a, nominated for a lot of awards was promising young woman with carrie Mulligan a few years ago, which I watched and and it's the same. It, it, it was an extraordinary film. I really enjoyed it. It sort of haunts you a bit. Extraordinary twists and turns throughout it. But that was, I think, a very tight uh, film. It didn't create the kind of Question marks over its integrity that Saltburn has, which uh, was in cinemas, and over Christmas uh, it appeared on Amazon Prime, so lots of people have been watching it. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it is the tale of a, a, a seemingly sort of uh, down on his luck scholarship boy from the north of England who comes from a sort of broken family background of abuse, uh, who ends up at Oxford on scholarship, uh, makes friends with a very handsome uh, young classmate, uh, and then goes off the following summer and spends it with his family in the mansion called Saltburn, where really all sort of hell uh, breaks loose slowly over the course of the film. And there are twists and turns again, don't want to spoil it if people haven't watched it yet. But uh, it is a fun romp. But there are people saying, that uh, it is either you know some on the camp of saying it's uh, snobby trash or superb satire. There's things that are incredibly I think well observed about the period. It's amazing that 2006 is already a period that you can kind of encapsulate with you know just the the language, the the dress, the 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 kind of mood of the whole thing. Um, but there, there's lots of people watching it. It's an incredible story as well. I've spotted in the Independent about a woman who's had to apologise to her whole family because she put it on as a family watch on christmas eve there are <laughs> some quite extraordinary uh blue scenes in this film. It does get very sexual
0: doesn't it? Yes, and
3: very odd. But
0: it's also kind of sub-brideshead isn't it? It's a bit even more. it's a bit, I don't know, Alan Hollinghurst Line Line of of Beauty, Beauty, that kind of thing. And I mean a lot of people, for instance I'm looking here at James Marriott in The Times talking about how actually that's not true and uh, the upper classes are simply really quite dull that, that, that being wealthy isn't a substitute for personality And Mm. and all the rest of it, and and also saying that this class division no longer exists in universities like Oxford, where where actually the posh are trying to be less posh, and your your boy from the comp or the grammar school is has much more kudos.
3: But I think there has been a change. So what was interesting for me was I went to university in the exact same year, so starting in two thousand and six. And there was, at the time, though, a little bit of... Because this was the end of New Labour, uh, where there was a bit of a kind of pushback on this, I think, from... And I, and there was some still... some. It was very much lad culture. It was still very much boarding school kids sticking with other boarding school kids. It was the sort of rise of Ra at the time, and that sort of Jack Wills look of the gilet and the pashmina and Ugg boots. And it, it still... There was, at the time, again, and then a version, I think it was Ben Wishaw was in it, of... Um, of uh, Bryce Cedricity yeah. that came out that sort of reinvigorated a bit of an interest in that kind of culture. And I think now things have definitely changed a lot and you see, you know, the, the style of, of clothing of younger people. It's like, you know, it's all 90s sportswear and trying to dress down and look like you're average and, and everything else. But I think there was at the time a little bit of a festization of that, which given Emerald Fennel's age, sort of roughly around mine, I could see her looking back on and thinking was was like an interesting trend then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think with her, the danger that she slightly had and I don't want to spoil either films for people is that there's these sort of gra- there's these sort of signposts throughout the film and then a sort of twist and grand reveal and things at the end um but she's in danger of kind of becoming like an M. Night Shyamalan figure who did, you know, The Sixth Sense and then all of his films are just about these sudden ends at the twists, mm. and whether or not she sort of branches out and goes into different things. But, I mean, Incredible Eye, it looks amazing. I think the performance for me of the film, though, was Rosamund Pike, who just, every line, she just absolutely stole, you know, talking about how she was, uh, everyone thought that she was the um, girl in Common People that Blur had spoken about in the 90s and, yeah, it was just... She had some excellent...
0: (laughs) So I would point listeners towards uh, uh, the lesson because it's very much it's a very similar film it even has Richard E. Grant in it as as does um, Saltburn mm. as the father figure it's a kind of atmospheric literary thriller but it's pretty much along the same lines and I think for my money a much much better film mm. uh, it has Daryl McCormick in it who I think was in Bad Sisters a lovely lovely Irish actor Yeah, uh, and um, uh, Alice Troughton she's a TV director and this is her, her featured feature debut Mm. i thought it was absolutely excellent and so much better
3: but someone on saltburn that i want to do uh, that does i do want to see that someone on saltburn who i do think was worth a mention as well actually in performance wise because we're going to talk about him in priscilla in a minute is um jacob lordy who i didn't realize is actually australian um but his sort of british mannerism his that specific oxbridge public Mm. schoolboy accent was just spot on in the way that he was sort of speaking and the laissez-faire of it all. I thought that was a really, inter- it was interesting that he had clocked in on on that, um, as you know, an up and coming out.
0: And what does he play in Priscilla then?
3: Uh, I think he's Elvis.
0: Right, so Priscilla is obviously the film about uh, about Elvis. Well, yes, he's about, Elvis, yeah. About Priscilla Presley, because that comes right after the other biopic of Elvis.
3: Yeah, the Baz Luhrmann one, which I've got to say, I loved. And it was one of, you know, the thing I missed in the in the pandemic was the cinema experience. And when I went to the cinema to see that, it's kind of one of the first films back I, I'd seen. Um, and, you know, people were kind of like the, the performance parts of it. There are questions about, you know, Tom Hanks uh, as the colonel was a bit wild, um, but it is a Baz Luhrmann film i think he tells everyone to dial it up to 11 um but you know the the performance in it was was great and it got people going and people were really enjoying the musical scenes and things like that uh, and it was a really interesting performance he didn't definitely didn't portray him as being a perfect husband or you know the most attentive father it portrayed him as someone who had a talent but became a victim and became entrapped by someone who controlled every aspect and manipulated him. But yeah, this Sofia Coppola film Priscilla uh, is very much playing a different side uh, of him and, and it looks more like an abusive relationship that he had with Priscilla Presley. Mm,
0: and it sort of portrays her as a 14-year-old in Germany meeting him. And mm. really that sort of lonely 14-year-old is then transported and being a lonely, you know, but however old she is then in Graceland, but pretty much controlled by drugs and and, and just by Isolation. isolation yeah uh really really sad and then of course elvis gets really fat now there's a wonderful story that is uh circulating in the british media here about cliff richard and elvis fat elvis
3: <laughs> yeah this is true <laughs> so this was uh this morning which is an itv uh tv show um where there's one of the presenters is Alison Hammond, who is the current darling of, of British, you know, uh, TV presentation. She is an absolutely amazing, bubbly, brummy woman who is, you know, well documented and talks about it herself. You know, has struggled with weight issues, uh, and he. Cliff Richards was on the show just before Christmas uh, talking about his hero, Elvis. And then she asked him, had he ever met Elvis? And he said, no, I was offered once, but I'd heard he'd got fat. And I just didn't want a photo with fat (laughs) Elvis, which just is (laughs) horrific. But famously, someone found that he'd had a a portrait done of him performing next to Elvis. And when he was asked, oh, I didn't know you'd done this. He said, no, it's what it would have looked like. That's that's
0: hilarious. It's hilarious. Of course. Elvis would not be fat today because no. he would have uh, access to Azempic this new miracle weight loss drug.
3: Yes, Azempic Wegovy uh, is created by a company called Novo Nordisk uh, which is a Danish company which has now overtaken LVMH to be the most profitable company. In Europe, because so much is the demand for this drug, particularly in the United States, it is actually causing problems because there are shortages for its intended users who are diabetics. Uh, but the results of the the drug, and obviously it is a relatively new drug, long-term effects might not be known yet, and there are definitely side effects, but it, it creates drastic weight loss. Uh, and I think you can see, if you ever you know, see certain celebrities who might have battled with their weight, one or two of them are suddenly bone thin and there are a lot of suggestions that they're taking it but even people have come out uh, oprah winfrey has come out in the last two weeks uh, and said that she backs it and that she's using it and that she doesn't have a problem with it but the people who are having a problem with it it seems are the fast food companies because Obviously, there is a correlation between people who struggle with weight, who are overeating uh, and not eating the correct things. And that tends to be, of course, people that use fast food, McDonald's, uh, KFC, all those kind of outlets that we all know around the world. Well. Given the huge uptake in Azempic in the United States, those companies are now getting concerned that it is going to hit their profits because it's their main customer base. So they've swapped fast food for fast weight loss and it is an appetite suppressant. So it just means that people just don't want to eat. It's not, it's not burning up the food quicker or anything like that. Uh, and this is causing a problem for these companies the likes of McDonald's and they're having to look at their offerings and see if they can pivot into healthier fast food to try and keep those customers.
0: Uh, and there was a Republican representative, his name is David Schweikert, uh, and he has a plan to roll out a Zempic across the US. He says that it's actually about fat loving. He's touting a Zempic, uh, uh, as the key to reducing the US health budget as well as lowering obesity levels Across the country, uh, he uh, he's doubled down on that theory in a, in, a, in a speech recently. He said, it's not fat shaming, it's actually fat loving. We can love our brothers and sisters back to health, which I think is interesting, but also takes us back to elections, because this yes. is the super year for elections, with Taiwan's elections this month predicted to have significant consequences for global geopolitics. Now, our Naomi Sue Elegant spoke to Emma Nelson on the last day of 2023, looking ahead to to the Taiwan election and others in Asia this year.
4: Joining us from Hong Kong now is Naimi Shu Elegant. Normally we'd find you in Singapore, but you're on your travels for the festive season, aren't you?
1: That's all right. I used to live in Hong Kong and I wanted to come back to celebrate with my friends. There's also going to be a huge fireworks show over the harbour, which is always really beautiful, um, and I'm very excited for that. Just tell us a little bit about how Hong Kong is, is encouraging people back
4: out. I mean, there's been a big drive to use the place for leisure as well as for work. Has it has it got there yet?
1: I think it's now gotten back to where it was in 2019, but during the protest, which was lower than it was normally. So it's recovering from the pandemic, but it still hasn't gotten the full swing back. I will say, though, compared to, you know, this time last year, there's a lot of tourists streaming in on the streets. Um, and, and for tourists, they're also offering a lot of special, you know, dispensations and little events. So I think the government is trying hard to to make it be alive again. And it does feel quite lively.
4: Let's look ahead to your neck of the woods for next year. And what are the big things that are going to be taking the headlines?
1: Well, in the first quarter of next year, there's going to be a lot of really, really big elections in Asia. Uh, I think the four most populous democracies, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, will be having elections in the first few months of the year. Uh, already next week, uh, January 7th, we have the Bangladesh general election and then the month after Pakistan, and then in February as well, Indonesia, and then later in the year, India. Taiwan is also having a presidential election in a couple of weeks, which will be very interesting to watch.
4: Indeed. I mean, Taiwan in particular is interesting to watch, depending on which way it'll go politically, will effectively determine an awful lot of its relationships with its neighbours and also further afield, such as the US.
1: Indeed, yeah. I mean, it's such a small country, but the the kind of outsized geopolitical impact of the election is going to be really big. So I think for that reason, a lot of people in China and the US and everybody else with any interest in you know, global geopolitics is going to be watching pretty carefully.
4: And just similarly to Taiwan and the, the fact that its president, Tsai Ing-wen, can't run for re-election, we have in Indonesia, Joko Widodo, who, who ends, what, a 10-year tenure as president. And these are two parts of the world which
1: have really punched above their weight. Indeed, yeah. I think definitely Jokowi and Tsai Ing-wen for different reasons, but also because they've both uh, had successful two terms have really kind of shaped the global outlook of their countries and also shaped the way that the rest of the world sees them. I think, um, you know, in the last few years, Taiwan has been kind of propelled onto the global stage in a way that it just really wasn't 10 years ago or even eight years ago. And the same with Indonesia, you know, especially when he was first elected, he was really this emblem of a new era. He was the first candidate. who did not come from the old military political elite and it was seen as kind of a new chapter. And now that's obviously going to be ending.
0: So that was Naomi Sue Elegant speaking to Emma about elections in Asia this year. And the one that chiefly concerns us today, the one that's in our headlines is Bangladesh, because they go to the polls tomorrow. But we've seen these arson attacks across the country. Uh, People died on a train that was set on fire, but also primary schools that are going to be uh, used as polling stations have also been set alight. Uh, The opposition is boycotting the election for the second time. They've said that it's absolutely not free and fair. There's no way that taking part, and that the country is on its way to becoming a one-party state.
2: Mm.
3: And a very awful situation, and something that is going to be used by those, you know, we said this is the biggest test of democracy uh, that we'll ever see this year because of all these elections. The clips of this, the reports of this are going to be, uh, you know, pumped out by those who want to say there's an alternative system, likes of China, likes of Russia, they will be pointing to this and other elections that might face this level of disruption or problems, uh, and say that, look, don't you want our system? It's much more stable. Yes, you don't have the same rights, but things are just sorted. And, and this doesn't happen. And you know they'll try and spin that sort of false narrative. Uh, and for elections, integrity of them around the world is really critical this year, because If election integrity falters, as we're seeing, sadly, in Bangladesh over this weekend, uh, then it does mean that I think there'll just be fewer and fewer countries operating as a true and proper democracy in the years ahead.
0: Mm. Uh, The opposition is the BNP there. Uh, It's led mass strikes and demonstrations to press home its request, which is that it wants a caretaker government uh, just so that everything can get sorted out. Uh, But the ruling Awami League uh, has the electoral system, or at least it's assumed to have the electoral system, largely under its influence. Uh, And everybody's just expecting a replay of recent polls. Uh, Prime Minister Hassina's likely to win a majority for her fifth term in office. Uh, and that will mean her government's the longest-serving administration in Bangladesh's history. She has an interesting association with a British politician.
3: Yes, that's right. Someone else who will be uh, campaigning this year is Tulip uh, Siddiqui, who is the shadow economic treasury uh, secretary here in the UK. That's part of uh, Sir Keir Starmer's Labour Party. We got word this week from Rishi Sunak that the UK election, he says, is minded to be in the second half of the year. That's something I always thought was going to happen. I actually think it could even be this time next year. I think it could be January 2025. And, and the reason I think it's partly because he's waiting to see if the economic situation in the UK recovers. It gives him a few more set piece of events like budget and conference season to try and build support. He might think there could be some rogue black swan event that scares people. Uh, you know, some action taken in, you know, Russia, you know, for instance, Russia, you know, invading another country or detonating a nuclear weapon or something in Ukraine that sort of shocks people and, and doesn't want them to go. But ultimately, I think as well... Uh, he is a person who is going to have lived at a very young age the first line of his uh, obituary Uh, and I think he'd much rather it says that he was prime minister for just over two years than 18 months Uh, and if he's really vain which sometimes it does seem so given his sort of love of sort of uh, videos he's sort of very odd movie over Christmas alone in Downing Street sort of parodying Love Actually which was quite strange Uh, you know he'd probably want his, uh, his line at Davos and other places he's going to go in the future to say British Prime Minister 2020. Two to 2025, rather than 2022 to 2024.
0: Absolutely. Well, we wait and see what happens here in British politics, and indeed in politics throughout the world. And as ever, we'll be reporting on these on our news programs. That's the Globalist that goes out live between seven and eight a.m. every single weekday. Uh, We'll also be looking at the briefing that's noon London time, and the daily six p.m. on weekdays too. Uh, So do stay in touch with those. And remember, you can always download our programmes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts if you can't catch them live. Vincent McIverney, thank you very much for being with me. Thanks very much. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. And the programme will return at the same time next week. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.